You're listening to the Running in Production podcast, where developers and engineers talk about their tech stacks, lessons learned, and general tips from running web apps in production. Here's Nick and today's guest. Welcome to Running in Production. Today, I'm with Dieter Lunn, who is using Rails to build a site that helps school bus drivers and aides find a job. Dieter, welcome to the show. Thank you. Happy to have you on. So do you want to kick things off by introducing yourself and letting people know a little bit more about your site? All right, sure. Uh, so it's uh, School Bus Hero uh, at schoolbushero.com. Started working on it um, when uh, my client uh, hired me on to help him get it going. But the state of Pennsylvania wanted uh, basically a job site to uh, help people find jobs in uh, student transportation, either as a driver or uh, I guess you call them aides or whatever, just people who help monitor the the students on the bus while it's in motion type thing. So we uh, set out and built it from scratch. Uh, It's currently running and and, uh, hopefully we can uh, expand it to more areas of the country. Nice. So you mentioned you picking this up as like a, a contract gig is that do you do like freelance full-time uh right now i do yeah uh it's uh been my full-time gig for uh a few months as uh uh sort of out of work and i was trying to find something you know this opportunity came up yeah it's it's definitely been helpful in terms of learning more of uh rails getting things uh in production easier uh, as it's not something that I had uh, necessarily done too much of in the past but I had I, had, I did know rails but like you know there, there's definitely been a lot of learning and improving my skills in the last few months as well nice yeah I think even with like a lot of experience that's the same thing like you're always learning something new in a job it's very hard to like know everything up front so that's cool to see it's all working out though in terms of the site itself are you the sole developer on this project uh, no, there is another developer uh, that we have and uh, a designer, uh, but I did uh, most of the initial setup and uh, basic coding. The other developer did uh, mostly the templates and, and things like that. Okay. If you had to just get like a rough estimate, how long do you think it took you to go from an empty folder to shipping the MVP? About two and a half months. Okay. Yeah, it's actually a substantial a substantially short amount of time, which is awesome because it's like, I'm sure as you discovered, Rails helps a lot to do common things quickly. Yeah, like there's there's a lot of the work that's uh, done by Rails itself. Uh, you know, not having to worry about how you're communicating with your database or uh, what your data is. It's basically just define what your data looks like, how you want it displayed on the screen. And Rails basically wires the two together for you. Right. Now, before we start diving into the details about this site, do you want to just give us like a rundown on maybe the types of screens or pages you might find on the site? Like, is it like a job board site or like, how does it work? Yeah, so it's basically a job board site. Uh, so there's the, the main screen that describes a little bit about uh, what it is we're you know, trying to do. Uh, you know, people looking for, for jobs uh, in the school bus uh, or, or student transportation industry. And then there's a uh, you know, a more detailed page about sort of what the job entails, uh, you know, some ba- some basic uh, information like that. But then there's also a couple of uh, pages, one for all of the companies that we have listed on the website right now, uh, along with uh, 
so there, so the list, there's the list, and then right alongside it is uh, a map with all of their uh, locations, and then another one for the jobs. Essentially, uh, all of the jobs that uh, are posted by the company are also listed there, uh, along with uh, the locations that those jobs are. And you can uh, enter your address on either of those pages and get to either the companies or jobs that are uh, closest to you. And you can choose a sort of distance between like 50 miles, 100 miles, uh, to find something that's uh, close enough for you to want to, you know, work at. Nice. So the site itself then, is it just for Pennsylvania area or is it nationwide? Right now it's just uh, Pennsylvania. Uh, it's the only location that we have companies and jobs uh, listed, but uh, we do have plans to market it and expand to other states. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense because I did check the site out before we hopped on the call and it was showing me jobs that were like 397 miles away. So a little bit more than like walking distance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, especially if you're you know, in, in some place like New York and you're trying to find a job in Pennsylvania. But I mean, if, if you're yeah. moving to Pennsylvania, uh, you know, and you're looking for a, and you're a school bus driver and you're looking for a job, uh, it can help you out there too. You can always enter an address, like your new address or an address that's close by and, and find something, uh, you know, that uh, can get you going. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, let's let's go back to Ruby on Rails here. Do you want to maybe just walk us through what it was like for you to pick Rails and, you know, how much did you spend like actually using Rails before you got this job, like basically, you know, motivation for using Rails in this project in the end? Um, I think the biggest motivation for using Rails was just its ease. Uh, I mean, I got the job through uh, a, a Rails-based community, so everybody there is essentially, you know, part of the group because they're interested in or are using Rails in some fashion. So it, it just seemed a, a natural fit for, you know, the, the group we were a part of as well as uh, you know our expectations of what the outcome would be. Okay. If you don't mind me asking, do you want to say what group that is? Like, is it a public message board somewhere or some site? Yeah, well, it's it's the uh, GoRails uh, Slack channels. So if you're familiar with uh, Chris Oliver's uh, GoRails uh, Ruby tutorials or the Rails tutorial videos, he has a private Slack channel uh, for his uh, paid members and uh, Nice. Yeah, no, Chris was a guest on the show, uh, I don't know, a year and a half ago, like somewhere in, in the earlier episodes. So that's cool to see that uh, he has that set up for you guys to find work. We're just like-minded individuals working with Rails. Although now I feel like the secret's out, out of the gate. Right now everyone knows, go to go, to go Rails to find some jobs. <laughs> <laughs> well, he doesn't even have a, a job board of his own set up for, uh, for Rails-specific jobs, too. It's not just the, the private Slack community, but uh, the community as a whole is, is great, too. Uh, Lots of friendly people, and uh, everybody's willing to, to jump in and help if you have any problems. Yeah, that's awesome. Do you want to maybe break down this app a little bit and go over some of the Rails features that you're using? Maybe some specific libraries or latest features of Rails? Yeah, uh, I mean, like beyond the basic uh, active record, we're using some gems like SearchKick and... Uh, oh, goodness, let me just pull it up here yeah. so I can... <laughs> I should have done that. But, uh, so yeah, we're, uh, we're using the uh, you know ubiquitous device authentication gems, geocoder gem, uh, pagey for uh, paging results to some degree, not quite everything yet. You know, search kick, qualify for roles, shrine for uh, up, some uploads eventually. Things like profile photos and stuff. There's a lot that we have plans for that aren't like integrated just yet. Yeah, we wanted to get the very basic output out there right now. 
and then uh, you know using a lot of uh, turbo and stimulus-based uh, JavaScript. Ooh, yeah. If this were a video call, like my ears just perked up. So kind of cool to see that you're using some turbo in there. Definitely want to talk about that. Uh, before we get there, though, when it comes to doing the geo coding stuff, do you want to go over maybe uh, how you're implementing that? Like, was it like third-party API calls that you need to make to get this information? I'm not really too sure how it works. Yeah, so the GeoCoder gem works with uh, a large number of different uh, third-party API services, either uh, Google or Bing or like any any number of uh, geocoding services. Um, you just in, in your model you say, okay, this is this is a model that I want to have a location on after I after it's created or saved. Uh, check if you know the address fields or. Uh, you can even reverse geocode if you have the latitude and longitude. But if, you know if the address has changed, you know go out to the API and say what's the new uh, you know location data, and that saves it into your database. In this case, we're using uh, Mapbox as our uh, API and our uh, Maps uh, viewer. Okay, and you mentioned using uh, Elasticsearch there. Well, using that gem specifically, but. Do you want to give us a rundown on where you're using the full text search or maybe some other Elasticsearch features? Uh, yeah, so we're using SearchKick to uh, implement Elasticsearch-based searching, uh, mainly for uh, the location data. So I know I know a lot of people like ransack, but that's usually good if you know like if you're doing like exact word searches in your database, etc. Elasticsearch is amazing for different things. Um, in this case, we're using it to uh, grab results um, within a certain range of, say, your address. So if you go to the website, you go to companies, you enter your address, run out, we, we geocode that address, we run out to geocoder and Mapbox and say, hey, what's what are the coordinates of this address? Then we go to Elasticsearch through SearchCake and say, you know, we have this location, what other locations are in your search database within, like, say, 50 miles of it, and then it returns those and we display that on the map. Very cool. So throughout that process, do you end up caching all of those API results to your local Elasticsearch then basically on like a need to know basis? Just like the company and like job location information. So uh, we cache all of the office locations in Elasticsearch when they're created. So when we geocode those addresses, that goes right into the Elasticsearch cache information when you're searching, uh, like when you're entering an address to search for, uh, that isn't uh, cached right now. Um, and any, you know, all the static stuff that we know is going to be long lasting is definitely cached for uh, quick retrieval. Okay. Do you want to walk us through maybe how that map page comes together? Like are you using stimulus there? Is any aspects of Turbo as well? Yeah, so that's uh, all stimulus. Uh, so there's a stimulus controller for the map. And by the way, so I hate to interrupt, but do you want to maybe just go over visually like what this page looks like? Like, if there's a map and like pins, and people can click like an address in a sidebar. Yeah, uh, so the, there there is a sidebar with a list. If you if you think of like say Airbnb or whatever, where you've got the list of the uh, you know you got the listings on the left and the map on the right. I mean, it's very simple right now. It's just a list of say companies and and their addresses, how many offices they have. Um, but then on the right, there's the map, and it's got all the pins on it for their head, uh, headquarters locations on companies. And you click on a pin, and it gives you the company name and uh, address and contact information as well. 
but all of that information, uh, including locations, comes out of uh, our database and is parsed into an array that is uh, then sent into our JavaScript controller that you know sends it all to Mapbox to render the map. <laughs> nice. So that's basically a majority of that is pure stimulus then, not so much using like turbo turbo frames or whatever. Yeah, we're not using turbo frames right now. It's all just like pure stimulus. Okay, and then generally for the site itself. Do you happen to use uh, streams or frames anywhere, or is it just like Turbo Drive for like page transitions? It's just uh, the, the Turbo Drive for transitions right now. We don't have any frames, although uh, that was that uh, might be something that we implement uh, later, just to sort of increase responsivity between certain page transitions. But right now, it's just uh, you know basic. Like I said, we just wanted to get it up and out as quickly as we could to get things running. Yeah. Yeah, it's so cool. Like the idea of like I I was a big fan of using Turbo Links even way back in the day. It's such like a big bang for your buck, right? Like you just drop it in one line of JavaScript, and suddenly like every page transition is really really fast. I love it. Yeah, well, it it, it takes a lot of the uh, sort of crud out of uh, HTML. <laughs> it's like we're, we're just gonna render and like replace the body. We don't need to worry about like replacing all the stuff that's the same all the time. So when it comes to things like user uploads, do you want to give us some examples of where that's being used on the site? Um, it's, like I say, it's, it's not really being used right now. Uh, for user avatars, we're just using uh, Gravatar based on their email. But we do have plans, uh, or at least I have an idea, uh, to implement better uh, profile photos, better profiles for uh, applicants, as well as uh, maybe profiles for hiring managers, so that uh, you know people have a little bit more information and interaction in that regard, but uh, those are, you know, sort of future and uh, image uploads are, are going to be handled then probably by Shrine or something. Okay. I'm curious. So, you know, I haven't really used the, the site too much, but is there an email feature where as an applicant, maybe you put your address and do you email folks to be like, hey, by the way, like a new position just opened up like eight miles away. Do you want to check it out? Uh, yeah. we. Uh, if you go on to the company, you can sign up to a company-specific newsletter. Uh so you can say, I want like more information about any upcoming jobs from this company, or uh, I just want something global from all the companies, like everything in the every once in a while that that's downloaded and 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 man emails are manually sent right now. All of that automation stuff is still sort of to come, but there is a newsletter feature for uh, for updated information on all of that stuff too. Yeah. Okay. And when it comes to sending those emails out manually, is that you just going to some? admin backend or maybe the company doesn't like they just write the email and send it there on the spot yeah that, that would be the uh the company or the department of transportation who uh, downloads that and uh, sends the emails but uh, or we might download the the data and send it to them i'm not sure exactly how we're handling that process right now but uh, you know it, it is available uh, to get those newsletters okay and for those emails I get sent out, are you sending them all through something like Sidekick or a, a different background worker or, or possibly none? As it's done manually, I don't know exactly how it's being uh, managed, but uh, eventually I would say we're going to use some sort of uh, you know job scheduler and mass email service to uh, uh, send them like SendGrid or Postmark. Okay. And you mentioned earlier that you do have another developer on the team who mainly just... Uh, develops the templates themselves, like the design aspect of that. Are you sticking to the like the Rails way, where you just have like ERB server render templates with sprinkles of JavaScript, or is this kind of broken up into an API backend with maybe a more JS heavy front end? 
Um, right now it's all uh, server-rendered ERB templates. Again, we, we just needed to get it up as quickly as possible, and uh, doing a, a single-page application like React or Vue would have probably taken too much longer uh, to get running than uh, we would have liked. So right now it's just the simple server. Right. Yeah, that's really cool to see, especially since you would think rendering a map would be a very, very front-end heavy thing, but you can just pull in a library to do all the heavy lifting there, pop in your pins and locations, and yeah, server rendered all the way. Yeah, the the, the map is, is rendered uh, really nice, and it's not even like rendered directly on our servers either. That, Like I said, that's uh, an API call through JavaScript to uh, Mapbox to implement, so you know their, their CDN is obviously very great to do that uh, quickly for us. Yeah, that's awesome. And for the code base itself, do you have it broken up into maybe a couple different services, or is it just all living in one repo, one monolith? It's all one monolith application. Nice. Curious to hear, like, what's the experience been like to have two different people work on different aspects of the site? Everything is in one repo. Do you find yourself stepping on each other's toes? Like, are you sometimes editing templates that someone else might be working on or no? Um, from time to time, uh, especially when we're in... Uh, vastly different time zones you know he, he's more in uh, the Asia area so you know, he's, he's working on things more in, in like my evening and early morning and overnight compared to when I'm working on them so there's you know a couple of overlap points for us but um, for the most part we're working separately and from time to time you know like either of us we might end up you know we're working our own branches right so like we don't end up actually like stomping on each other's toes when it comes to actual uh, code, but from time to time when we're trying to merge it together, there are conflicts and we sort of have to figure out, okay, like, is the best way to get this done type thing? And which, which version should we use? Which one was the earliest, the latest? What change is required to keep this running properly? Right. Yeah, that's good to see, though. For the most part, it's working totally fine. And, and like, is this a scenario where maybe you introduce a couple of models, you set up the controller, make the actual template files, like the ERB templates, maybe drop in a couple of variables that are available, but then you let the designer do all the work around, you know, sprinkling in the HTML to make it all look like a site? Uh, for the most part, yeah. Um, you know, I, 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 I might get the, you know, the, the basic form of it uh, up and running. Like, this is, you know, these are the, the things that need to be there. Um, in some cases, it might just be, okay, here's the, the, the template design. Um, in terms of like the the map pages and stuff, uh, you know, he just put in a you know a flat image of like a PNG or whatever of a map saying map goes here, and then I'd come in and put in the actual map code. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. And for the front end there, do you happen to use Webpacker or do you just go pure asset pipeline? Uh, it's all Webpacker. Uh, minimize the asset pipeline as much as possible. So any images and everything like that are all. Uh, compiled uh, Webpacker assets. Nice. I'm curious, uh, what was your experience like setting all that up with Webpacker? And also, are you using the latest Webpacker 6 beta? Also, in the same topic, what version of Rails do you happen to use? Uh, so we're using uh, 6.1.4 on this project with Ruby 3.0.2, so it's definitely hot and new. And uh, yeah, we're using Webpacker uh, 6 beta, I think the latest uh, release candidate. I get kind of, uh, not OCD-ish, but just, like, I like everything to be as up-to-date as possible, and it really sticks when, like, everything's sort of, like, older, and I'm like, mm -hmm. Sometimes you got to think, like, okay, if it's an older project, it works, 
don't play with what works. Just, <laughs> you know, but like in this case, it was like brand new. We were starting over from scratch. So I had like everything, like the latest, greatest, like, you know, most up-to-date versions that I could find all the time. So. Yeah. It's also like one of those things where it's like, yeah, the old stable version is great, but at some point, like if you never touch it, you wake up one day and it's like two and a half years in the future and now you're ready to update and it's like, uh, <laughs> like a pretty big change that you need to do. Yeah. Um, I know I'm like one of the guys in our uh, group here or whatever, he was updating a project. I think that was on rails two or three to six. And it's like, you gotta kind of take that in stages, you know, like go, you know, go like one major version at a time and make sure that everything's still running. You can't just jump the whole way and uh, close that gap in one shot. Yeah, for sure. So do you have a schedule or like do you do something to where you run something like a bundle outdated to check your dependencies or do you use like Dependapot with GitHub to help you keep tabs on like when you might want to update something? There's nothing there like that right now. Um, every once in a while I just go in and, uh, you know, just do bundle update or, or yarn upgrade or something just to make sure that I have the latest uh, versions within uh, the version ranges that I have set in the files and gets whatever is still compatible. Right. So earlier I kind of hinted at maybe like an admin backend or something where someone might go do to do some work. But, you know, you mentioned the companies themselves have their own little area to do like newsletter stuff. But do you actually have like a, a whole dedicated admin for just you, like the actual site owner? Uh, yeah. Uh, right now we're just using uh, administrate uh, the uh, gem from... Uh, Thoughtbot, I think it is, that uh, basically is just a, uh, an admin crud editor that uh, you know, we set up to get like quick and dirty crud forms for our models. Beyond that, we don't have anything special, but uh, you know, do, you know, probably implement better forms and processes in the future too. Right. Yeah, it's always a fun thing to think about. It's like, do I make the back end for myself better or do I develop user features that makes the site better for everyone? Yeah, in this case, we wanted all the user features up and running as quickly as possible. So, you know, nobody's really going to see the, you know, the, the ugly back end. So we can look however we want, you know, however it looks and we'll deal with it later. Right. So you mentioned like CRUD generators and stuff like that. Have you written any custom generators to help generate stuff in the way that you like your things to be styled? Not, not, like nothing Rails generated usually. Um, I mean, it, uh, like you know, we haven't really done any of the sort of scaffold generators. It's just you know, generate the controller, you know, start writing the template files, and away we go. I think the only, the only uh, custom generators maybe are like. You know, I need device templates, or I need a new pundit policy, or something like that. Other than that, it's just the standard you know, migration and controller model generators from Rails. Right. That's oh, nice that you brought up using pundit there. Do you want to maybe go over some uh, examples of how you have that implemented? Like, what types of resources are you controlling? So, each of the different uh, models we have, so you know, company, job, uh, etc., would have its own policy. And uh, based on the role we have set up, you know, we check and see which of the different CRUD actions create, read, uh, edit, or destroy each user at different levels can uh, possibly do. In this case, most of it is uh, set to admin, you know, just because we don't have any uh, other screens for other users to sort of play around with stuff right now. But uh, that'll be coming. So 
it makes it really easy to sort of redefine who can do what without having to step into your controllers or views and be like, oh, where did I like define what can who can do that? You know, it's like it's all in one spot. Just go into the one policy file and say, can they edit a job? If they have this role, they can, and takes care of it. Yeah, I've always been a big fan of using Pundit. Even it's funny because it made its way out, out into other tech stacks as well, like a very similar library, similar name. So yeah, it's a great way to go about that stuff. Yeah, I find it easier than can, can, can. Oh yeah, the old Ryan Bates one of can, can, and then it was can, can, can. <laughs> Speaking of which, by the way, uh, did, you, did you ever see Ryan's older videos on the Railscast? Is that like how you found Go Rails eventually or no? I don't think that's how I found Go Rails, but I did uh, uh, see Railscasts originally when uh, he was working on them. Uh, I was kind of sad when he stopped because I was like, oh, these are so good. But I'm glad that he made like all of the premium ones uh, free at that time as well because he wasn't going to continue. He was just like, all right, everything I got, anybody can use. I mean, some of them are probably still relevant because they're more methodologies more than rail specifics. But uh, those ones that are, you know, sort of like, this is how you do it in this version of Rails are kind of old. And this, uh, Chris and Go Rails, uh, maybe updating some of those or, or giving new uh, techniques on some of the older stuff too. Right. So now on the topic of like learning outside of videos, maybe like what was your experience like getting all the latest and greatest things set up? Was it like really painful? Not too bad? How's the things running in general for you? Not too bad. You know, getting Webpacker 6 up and running sometimes can be a little bit uh, flaky, but uh, I think I started the project off with one of my uh, sort of template projects. So I got a, a template project I have on my GitHub profile that uh, is basically just a, a bare-bones nothing app that I uh, sort of derive others from, and it's got all of the basics sort of set up in it already, so I don't have to worry about like trying to configure it all. But you know, the, the README and, and uh, whatnot in there, the, the community, uh, searching Google for blog posts um, on how others uh, might have done it, or even, you know, uh, Chris's videos, all of it sort of uh, contributed to it. But, I mean, when I, when I started with Rails, there really was nothing but the official documentation. So knowing how to search through the API docs and the Rails guides uh, really helps, too. Yeah, for sure. But yeah, the community is awesome one. Yeah, I guess that's the value of just having a lot of opinions, right? It's like everyone kind of does the things the same way, so it's like we can all benefit from the same knowledge, sort of. Yeah. Now, you mentioned this uh, skeleton project or starter project that you have on GitHub. Is that open source? Yeah, so that uh, project, uh, my template project, is available as uh, a public project on GitHub. It's uh, my, my username, Kodo2000, uh, slash Campestral. Nice. Yeah, I'll make sure to, to link to that one into the show notes. So maybe now we can transition a little bit into like the rest of your tech stack. So, you know, you mentioned are using Rails, are using Elasticsearch. Do you want to go over uh, what database you chose to use, do you happen to use Docker and things like that? Uh, yeah, so we're using uh, PostgreSQL as our database. Uh, we're not using Docker, but we, we are using uh, Hatchbox for deployment from our repository onto our uh, servers uh, with DigitalOcean. Nice. So when it comes to using Hatchbox, I have not used it firsthand, but do you want to give us the rundown and what it lets you do or helps you set up? Uh, yeah. So it's uh, very much like uh, Heroku with your own servers. So when you go into Hatchbox, you got to set up 
you know, uh, a server cluster. So you can go to any, you know, virtual private server company that supports Ubuntu and say, you know, I need to create these servers. This is my database server. This is my web server. And then Hatchbox goes in and says, okay, uh, we're going to install a little couple of scripts or whatever for us to help manage this. And then, uh, and, and run deployments, etc. And then you tell it sort of where your repository is, what uh, branch you want to deploy, and it can automatically pull that on, on a push to any of those branches. And then it deploys it to your server running either Passenger or Nginx. Gets it up and running, and then you just point your domain at your server. So, it, like I say, it's it's like Heroku. It takes a little bit more effort because it is your own servers and you know extra cost maybe, but it can also be a little bit cheaper because I know push pricing can be kind of expensive. Yeah, it's like once you start adding one of the paid tier databases and maybe you're using Redis as well and a couple workers, and before you know it, you're at like eighty to hundred bucks for like an entry point just to get the app up. Yeah, I know. Like getting getting everything in, like with Elasticsearch and stuff up and running with uh, Hatchbox, pretty simple. You know, we just needed to have you know the servers, which can be you know some fairly cheap ones on something like DigitalOcean or Linode or wherever you want to do it. And Hatchbox itself is you know cheap per month too. So you know a couple of servers that are maybe five bucks a month, and you know twenty nine bucks a month for Hatchbox and can get everything up and running redis hatchbot uh, elasticsearch your rails app you know whatever you need and it's no extra cost per service you just run it on your own hardware okay so is that how you have things set up then to where you have elasticsearch and postgres and your rails app on three different servers it's like one on each um it's, it's only two servers the database and elasticsearch are on one and the web app is on the other with redis i think Okay. Do you happen to know like what the specs are of those machines? Or the I mean you mentioned like the five dollar a month one. Is that just like one gig, one CPU core? Yeah, I think it's just the like the one CPU core, one gig of memory, and I think like five hundred gigs of hard drive space. They're not the the big ones for sure. Because we didn't really need much uh, to do that uh, right now, but I mean it it, it is expandable when uh required as well like we can always add more uh, services or servers you know like it is still scalable as required with hatchbox to just increase the cluster and, and things like that so so when it came to setting up hatchbox does it give you a way to set up Elasticsearch for you or did you have to go onto the server and like apt install it and get it all set up well, it, it does it all automatically. You just say, you know, I need uh, Elasticsearch for this as well, and it goes and installs all of that on the, the server through uh, the package repositories uh, that Ubuntu has. Nice. So when it comes to dealing with things like secrets with Hatchbox, do they give you a way to, like, put environment variables in a secure way, like, on their site, and it makes its way onto your servers? Yeah, so you can, there's a, there's a, uh, a spot to uh, environment variables, just like Heroku, and... Uh, It'll deploy them as environment variables to your server as well, so that you know everything's still secret. Very nice. And then for hooking up things to where you push code to whatever uh, code provider you want to use, like GitHub, did, did you have to set up like something like Heroku then, where you just put in like a Hatchbox URL as, as like a webhook URL on the GitHub side? Um. Yeah. They had. There is a a webhook uh, URL for uh, pushes to. Uh, your database that uh, Hatchbox 
we'll listen to for deployments, and then you can uh, get those uh, set up there too. Nice. Now, speaking of deployments, do you want to maybe walk us through what it's like for you to develop a new feature, you know, code sitting under DevBlocks, like do you happen to make feature branches and stuff, like pushing that up to GitHub and then it making its way out to production? Yeah, so usually what I do is I would uh, you know, create a branch off of whatever is the latest stable. If I have, uh, usually that's uh, develop and then uh, I like the Git flow model where it's prefixed with something like feet or uh, fix or something. So I'll generally name my branch, you know, if I'm doing a uh, job feature of like feet slash job off of the develop, I'll develop all the code for that, usually push that up to um, the repository just to sort of uh, have a record of it in case something happens. Once the feature is developed enough that it's usable, I'll merge it back into develop. And then from there, it'll go into usually the staging branch where we can look at it on our staging site, uh, make sure that everything works in the production environment before actually merging it into production where it is then launched for public consumption. Nice. So that staging environment, is that just running on like a different subdomain somewhere and also managed by Hatchbox? Yeah. So it's just another uh, Hatchbox deployment uh, on on a subdomain of uh, the main site that uh, is basically the same app. It just might be running on a newer version, depending on uh, the features that we're developing. Very cool. So do you end up using that to test database migrations to make sure everything is running nice before you go on and actually do it in production? Yeah. So, I mean, if uh, it's usually to test uh, deployments and new features. So if uh, a migration or something is going to fail, uh, it will fail on, migrate on the staging server first. But uh, the way Hatchbox does deployments... I believe it uses like Capistrano in the background even, but it copies it to like a new folder, runs all the deployment scripts first, uh, and if it actually like completes without failure, it then updates a soft link to the current one and restarts the server so that uh, the new version is uh, pulled in instead of uh, sort of taking down the active site to update. Right, that makes sense. And when it comes to like configuring those hooks and things that could happen during like the deploy lifecycle, is that something Hatchbox gives you in their web UI where you can just paste in your own scripts, or is there like a Capistrano file somewhere in, in the repo? There is a, a deploy script that you can uh, edit. It's basically just a, a bash script um, with all the different steps, and you can sort of add and remove, uh, customize the deployment however you need to. Uh, but for most things, the basic uh, deployment works. Right. And when you push your code up to the repo, do you push it directly to there, or do you push it to GitHub first, and then it goes to there? Or do you do both just to like, have a backup? Well, you don't have to like, You don't have to push it to, to Hatchbox. Like, you just push it to your repository, wherever it may be, GitHub, Bitbucket, GitLab, the, the webhook that you attach for, uh, say, like new pushes to this branch, tells Hatchbox, hey, there's a new push to this branch, it goes and, and does a pull and, and runs the deployment. Okay, yep, that makes sense. And when it comes to that setup, do you also run CI in GitHub Actions on GitHub, like just to run like a test suite or maybe RuboCop or whatever you guys use? Not right now. Testing is something that uh, is kind of lacking. Um, I know a lot of developers tend to like test-driven development, but I do a lot of my testing sort of live and in person and living color. So, I mean, I know it works because 
I, I use it as I develop it. You know, testing would definitely help reduce some of the errors, maybe. Um, but right now, uh, it, it is something that's lacking. So speaking of errors, do you want to run us through maybe the most recent type of error you've gotten where you kind of wish like, ah, oh, maybe if I had some tests, this wouldn't have happened? Always good to have error management, which we use Honey Badger for, so we can see when errors come in. So the most recent one, um, so syntax errors and templates and stuff are interesting, um, kind of hard to catch with standard testing unless you're doing like view testing and those can be quite involved to get up and running properly. Authorization uh, errors uh, that we've had in the past could probably be fixed with text, you know, sorted out with, with testing before deployment, but, uh, but a lot of them can also be caught just by running the app, going through all the different uh, steps and every action that you're implementing. If you're adding a new feature, just going through all the different things that you're trying to do with it. And if something breaks, you should know in your local console whatnot beforehand too, but uh, it's hard to say. Uh, I haven't really encountered anything that couldn't be found a different way either. Right, and when it comes to the other developer working on the project, if he commits code there, do you end up uh, locally running it, or do you just go like straight to the staging server and kind of test it there? I'll look it over, depending on the changes. I might uh, run it first just to go through it, but a lot of times... Uh, you know, it was just, uh, you know, HTML visual changes, maybe a CSS change or something. You know, any of the major backend changes or things that uh, I probably would have ended up doing on that project. Right. So you don't just wake up one morning and there's like 35 new models and like 17 controllers made? <laughs> no, not usually. By the way, speaking of testing, for whatever reason, reminded me to maybe circle back and talk a little bit about payments. So I don't know how we have things set up. Maybe you can shed some light on this one. Like when a company signs up to post a job, do you require a payment? And somebody like, do you have Stripe set up in this site or no? Payment and sign up like that aren't really something that the app does right now. Basically, companies are on the site if they're a member of the organization that manages or, or oversees their business. In this case, it's the Pennsylvania Department of Transportation. You know, our, our client was, was uh, the DOT. And they said, okay, these are all the companies that we want on the site. And so we, we preloaded all of them in. Uh, and, you know, like I said, because there are direct client billing is handled outside of uh, the app for the most part. Any signups are basically just job seekers and uh, signing up for newsletters. Okay. And when it comes to keeping that company list up to date, is that something that you do personally, like in, in your admin backend? Or does your client do that? So right now... Uh, it's something that that we have to do. The client can just provide us with a properly formatted CSV file that we can just uh, uh, go into our backend and say, import this CSV and creates everything in the backend for us. Uh, that's one of the things we implemented was a sort of an import feature to, to take a file and just import it all instead of having to go through everything manually. Right. So on a scale of 1 to 10, like, how cool was it after you made that import script and it actually worked, just to see it like all working? <laughs> uh, pretty good. Uh, I'd say like 9.5. Uh, 
you know, it's one of those things that you're just like, oh, this is probably going to fail so bad. And then, like, you get it up and running, and it's like, oh, wow, like, this is going to make life so much easier. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I love little, like, one-off automated scripts or doing things that it's like, instead of doing this 15 minutes, it's like you just run the command and it's done in two or whatever. Yeah. Uh, seed files for, for Rails are really good for that, too. Um, I know on another project, uh, we're using seed files to, to transfer data from another older site into the new updated one. And, uh, yeah, the original seed file was like tens of thousands of lines of just create statements, essentially. And I spent, I can't even recall how long, like splitting it up into different files for different sections of it to try and reduce not only the computer processing time on each file but also just the read increase the readability and maintainability of like okay if we need to change something like you know where is it in this file for one <laughs> you can't have something that's like tens of thousands of lines of just mindless database creation statements and expect to find anything <laughs> yeah i can relate to that like old school 2002 days of PHP where you have that 9,000 line file with SQL and HTML all rolled up there. Oh yeah. Oh, I remember those beginning days of PHP and you're just like, okay, this file is so mishmashed. It's like, I have no idea where this database call is because it's buried somewhere in an HTML call. And it's like, <laughs> now, speaking of that seeds file, when it comes to like setting up local development data do you use anything like a faker library to come up with some fake data or you just pull in like the real production company names and stuff originally when i started development on the on school bus hero um i think i was just entering like like manually doing some like random test data on the on the second project uh using uh, a subset of the the actual data to not only to test the uh, seed files, but also for some basic data to run through some of the functions that were uh, needing to replicate from the original site. Okay. Now, speaking of databases, maybe we can talk a little bit about how they're potentially backed up. Does Hatchbook, does Hatchbox give you any way to do automated database backups, or is that on you to kind of do like SQL dumps? That's on us to do backups, but uh, DigitalOcean does have backups to like create snapshots of droplets and things like that too so you can just sort of like back up the whole server not just the database but that's definitely something that uh has to be uh determined on a more active basis to make sure that if something does break the only the only true backup is the one that's tested you got to be able to restore from it too yeah absolutely that's the other half of the story <laughs> make sure a restore works like take 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 a take a, a dump from you know your actual site and try and restore it to your staging site and see what happens. Yeah. So do you do that on like a regular basis or no? Not yet. Um, our database isn't too extensive, and most of the data is just stuff that we've uh, imported from CSVs that we have backed up. So uh, if we need to restore the database in any way right now, we'll just uh, quickly run our migrations and import the CSVs again, and that's a pretty quick process. Right, that makes sense. And I guess, is there also like applicants as well that may sign up? Possibly. That might be like the only data that's uh, lost, you know, so something that we should get on uh, probably quick. But uh, I'm not too sure how many users we have there right now. I have to pull that information out of the database. Okay. Now, on the topic of DigitalOcean, do you happen to also use them for hosting your DNS records or no? 
Um, no, I'm not sure where uh, DNS records are hosted. So on the topic of DigitalOcean, do you happen to have any of their alerting things set up, like those little metrics where it can monitor your CPU and memory load and then email you if they go like above a certain constraint that you set up? Nothing that I get. Not to say that there might not be something uh, that uh, uh, my client has set up to, to monitor himself, but I don't have anything uh, set up for me to, to get notifications from that. Okay. And then I guess like just for completion's sake, I'll ask, like, do you have any external sites set up to like maybe hit the homepage or whatever just to see if it's throwing a 200? Not right now, but that's something that uh, I'm probably going to recommend we get uh, set up as well. Yeah, I try not to drop too many like like straight up suggestions, but Uptime Robot is a pretty good one. They're not like a sponsor, but I use them, but they're free. So they'll just check your site every five minutes to see if it gets a status code 200. If not, you get emailed. Yeah, I know there was, there was one that I was uh, using for my own stuff while I had something up uh, a while ago, but uh, hopefully we can get something up like that. I think Hatchbox does Uptime Monitoring too. I think I've got that. I think I've got that set up through uh, or not Hatchbox, sorry, uh, Honey Badger. I think I've got the uptime. Yeah, I got I got uptime checks from Honey Badger on that site right now, so we'll get notifications from them when it's uh, down. Very cool. So speaking of Honey Badger, do you want to go over uh, potential other SaaS apps that we didn't have a chance to talk about? Um, big, the biggest one probably is uh, Mapbox. Uh, from there, other than that. We do use uh, MaxMind a little bit, but that's just a downloaded uh, file for some uh, city location stuff. Other than that, uh, there's really nothing that we're not running ourselves. Okay. So what would you say some of your best tips and lessons learned are from building this app out? Take your time. Trust in what others have already built. A lot of this app wouldn't have probably come together as quickly as it did if... We didn't have uh, map services like Mapbox or um, a lot of the great gems like SearchKick and AuthTrail, Lockbox, etc. from uh, Andrew Kane, um, as well as uh, Rollify, Pundit, Geocoder, uh, things like that. Those app, Without those gems, we probably would not have uh, been able to get this up as quickly as we did because we'd have to try and work on all of those types of things from scratch. Yeah, and then suddenly it's like you become a library developer instead of like an application developer. Yeah, and I mean with Rails, uh, you know, you really are using a library of tools already. I mean, like Rails is nothing more than active controller, active record, active model, action, all the different pieces and libraries that they've put together to, to make life easier for developers too. So I mean, like, if you can find something that does half of the work for you and it's just a matter of tying it together, uh, you can get things done very quickly. Yeah, for sure. Now, before I wrap this up, on the topic of Rails, you mentioned you know you do like to keep things up to date. And at the moment, at the time of recording this episode, Rails 7 isn't out. But do you foresee yourself updating to Rails 7 like the millisecond it gets released or are you going to let it simmer for a bit? Maybe not the second it comes out, but it wouldn't surprise me if we updated to, to 7 for, for the staging within a few weeks or even uh, on a on a branch that I have locally that might not ever get pushed to the repo, who knows? But um, I mean, I don't see that there's going to be any major deprecations or changes from 7 that would affect our app. 
and the only thing I could see are maybe some benefits and, and uh, changes that might even make parts of our app easier to use. Nice. Yeah, those are the best updates. It's basically you get to delete code and things end up being more stable. Yeah. Cool. So, Dieter, thanks a lot for coming on the Running in Production podcast. It was really great having you on. Not a problem. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So before we wrap this up, do you want to share any links to your site, Twitter, GitHub profile, anything like that? You can find the, the website we've been talking about at uh, schoolbushero.com. My personal uh, GitHub is uh, github.com slash coder2000. That's C-O-D-E-R-2-0-0. You can find all of my public repositories there. I've got a lot of uh, .NET stuff as well as uh, the template app that I used to uh, start off this project with uh, that's set up with uh, Webpacker 6, Rails 6.1.3, I think, right now. But So, I mean, it, it probably needs a little bit of updating itself right now, but uh, pretty decent and definitely a good head start. Yeah, very cool to see. Like, you use that to build this app, right? So it's like the proof is in the example app. Yeah, basically. Uh, I know there's also a lot of other uh, developers out there with uh, template apps and, and, you know, things to help give you a jump start on just uh, uh, more than uh, Rails new. Yep. Yeah, it's always good times to make your own custom templates and stuff like that. I don't know, like that stuff is like fun to me. Yeah, I mean, sometimes you wonder about the need of it given that there are so many of them but sometimes you like to do things just a little bit differently than they do and having you know your own place to start off from that you know is set up the way you want uh, is a bonus yep absolutely so that's going to do it for this episode and on that note to everyone listening thanks for tuning in and i'll see you in the next one you've been listening to the running in production podcast you can find a full archive of the show at runninginproduction.com Also, don't forget to subscribe using your favorite podcast player or leave a review if you like the show.